Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Batman Nightcast, a podcast chronicling the four-color adventures of the Dark Knight detective in the post-crisis on Infinite Earths era that began in 1986. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. And this time we're talking about Batman issue 406, which continues the epic Batman year one storyline. But before we go any further, Chris, is there something you'd like to say to all of the Sherlock Holmes fans out there? <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. Um, <laughs> yes, people, I, yes, to all our listeners, I apologize. I misspoke. I do know that Sherlock Holmes' address is the infamous 221B Baker Street, not 2218 Baker Street, <laughs> 2218 Baker Street. I had it right in my notes and I read it incorrectly. I'm sorry. And I didn't catch it until I listened to the episode because <laughs> Ryan edited it and then he tried to edit it out, but it just didn't make it just sounded weird. So I, I did. So. I did. I didn't catch it when you actually said it live, like while we were recording. I didn't catch it. And then when I'm listening to it, I was like, wait, did he did he say that? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh, I was like, this is gonna sound horrible. Like, I was like, can I, can I cut out that part? Like, can I, can I like reshape your sentence or whatever? Like by by cutting certain <laughs> things to like make this so that it doesn't say. That. And it didn't. It just sounded weird. It sounded like we clearly cut something out of what you were saying. So I was like, all, all right. right, he's gonna have to live with this one. Yeah, it's my mistake. But but let it be known that I do know that that was. I, I did know that the correct address. I just said it wrong. I, I honestly, and this is gonna sound like a flimsy excuse. I really do need a new pair of glasses. My prescription has really changed, about, and I've got a I've got an eye appointment for the end of this week, so you all will know that. Hopefully, I won't make errors like that again. <laughs> I beg your forgiveness. I I begged uh, Peter Cushing's forgiveness, even you know, because <laughs> I played Sherlock Holmes, and uh, I love Peter Cushing. So there you go. <laughs> well, next episode, when you refer to stately wake manner, then we'll know that to the, uh, you haven't gotten your new glasses yet. That's right. <laughs> uh, all right, moving on from that, uh, just a few new sort of current events things. Uh, on Thursday, I got a chance to see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Uh, I know a lot of you might not have seen it yet, Chris. At the time of this recording, Chris, you haven't seen it, so I won't spoil anything. Uh, I will say, overall, I enjoyed it. I recommend it. I like it about as much as I like the first one. Now, the first one I thought was really, really well done. It was heartfelt. It was emotional. It was funny. Um, but it didn't... It was never one of my favorite Marvel movies just because it didn't have the nostalgia factor. The first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, I would say, is objectively better than Ant-Man, but I've always mm. liked Ant-Man. Go figure. I, I just one of the people, like one of six people who like Ant-Man. So, <laughs> so I really enjoyed that movie because of that. Um, this one, I, I think the sequel is funnier than the first one. They try to go for more emotional punches, and some of them pay off. Some of them resonate. Some of them I don't think do. I think a few of them don't land as much. Um, great soundtrack again. Uh, I don't think the songs are always incorporated organically. There are a few times when it feels like, okay, we're just going to slow things down so that we can have a song moment, where it's mm. like we're going to do something cool and look how cool this moment is with this song, and they kind of hang a light bulb over that. Now, it's usually a good song, and it's usually a cool moment in the movie, but it did feel like we were stepping away a little bit to like kind of call attention to this. I, I, it just felt like it was, the movie was a little bit self-aware at times, and the other time I just I kind of felt like in the second act, again not spoiling too much, not 
characters kind of go separate ways, kind of go off on their own little things and have their own little character building moments, which is nice because it does build character and all of these scenes are nice for just your general enjoyment. But I think in that second act of the film, the story kind of comes to a halt so that everybody can do their own thing and then we'll come back again at the end and pick up the story. Uh, So it's just structurally, I felt like there were a few times when I was just like, um, I don't know if we're making any forward momentum. And then I've got, well, I'm actually, it feels more of, more like a spoiler, so I, I won't actually mention my biggest sort of criticism with the movie, which isn't actually a problem with the movie. It's just something that I feel as a, as a viewer. Um, there is a joke in there towards the end of the movie, and I won't say it because it's towards the end, but it reminded me of Shag and something Shag says a lot on his podcasts. And I had, <laughs> it had me laughing really heartily in the theater. It was probably the biggest laugh from me in the movie. Um, and uh, maybe next week I'll, or next episode, I'll say what that was, just because by then more people will have seen it. So. Cool. Well, I'm hoping I'm hoping to get to see it today, but it'll, we'll just have to wait and see. It might have to wait till next weekend, which sucks. Eh. But I'm gonna have to stay off the internet for the next <laughs> the next week. <laughs> open. Um, also, this past week, as at the time we we're recording this, uh, Free Comic Book Day was yesterday. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. I've mentioned this before, the last couple of years, when I go to free comic book day, I don't even really seek out the free books as much. Um, The store that I go to usually has really good sales on trades and graphic novels and collections. That's what I go to. Like, I can get, like, a big, thick Marvel Omnibus edition for, like, 60-70% off cover price. Uh, I've done that in the past, and those are always really nice. This year I went and they're like, I, I don't know, the store I went to is different than a, the store that I usually go to. Uh, and it just seemed like the uh, the collections and the trades, they it didn't have that good a selection. A lot of them had been picked through. So I didn't get anything there. I got a, f- a handful of free comics. Uh, I got the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles one, DC Superhero Girls, Lady Mechanica, uh, Rick and Morty, and something called Tex, which I don't know anything about, but it just looked different. Uh, and then I got a T-shirt, a Star Wars T-shirt, and a well, just something that I, I paid full price for. But it was a DC superheroes coloring book, uh, which looked very, very cool. It just has a lot of covers from like classic DC comics, ranging back from the Golden Age up to some more modern stuff. Uh, just looked really funny. I, I showed that to Angie, and she was like, "Oh, that'll be great for the baby when he grows up." And I'm like, "Oh." <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I can probably save a couple pages for the baby. <laughs> she, she smacked yeah. me. She smacked me like Cindy would usually smack you. <laughs> you go to Dollar Tree and get the baby one of the dollar DC coloring <laughs> exactly, books. Exactly, exactly. Okay, you save the art adult coloring book for you. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you get for free comic book day? <laughs> uh, we went yesterday to our our comic shop of choices, Heroes Realm in, in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky. We didn't have the kids with us because they're on camping trips, but uh, we picked up a few um, free comics. We got the DC Superhero Girls, uh, one for Cindy, one for Danny. Uh, we got... Uh, we got the uh, Wonder Woman uh, free comic book day issue. They were having a, they have a great sale every year. Everything that's on the rack, like all the new comics or whatever they've still got on the rack, is a dollar, no matter how much it is. I mean, we cleaned up. I mean, I bought a lot of comics. I bought a lot of uh, a lot of things. I just sampled, and you know, we got uh, the funny thing is, one of them I bought was already a dollar. Was the uh, True Believers giant size X Men issue because. 
somewhere along the line, I've I've lost any reprint I had of Giant Size X Men number one. I'm like, wow. that's that's not right, you know. So uh, I had X Men number one, but not Giant Size X Men number one. Uh, so I mean, original X Men number one. I still have my you know Jim Lee X Men number one. Yeah. Uh, but so I got that. I mean, I got uh, the Adam Strange Future Quest one shot. I got that and some other cool stuff like that. So yeah, it was fun and. Man, that place was packed. It was great to see so many people. And I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't hardly walk. I mean, it was, yeah. <laughs> it was just like, you know, you just had, you're almost in line just to walk around the store, you know, to, to get to the different parts of it. And it, uh, it was great. And uh, I've seen that coloring book before. There, I think they've got some other ones too. I think there's a Flash one and, yeah, and, there were and a, a Wonder Woman one. Yeah. And they're, they're sharp and they've got some, some great covers and, and just great artwork and, and uh, yeah, I've, I've been tempted by those myself because I mean it's almost like having a like a, a nice DC style guide when you can't have the actual DC style guide like Professor Zoom has. He's actually yeah, got JLGLPBHN style guide, you know. So yeah, uh, <laughs> no, yeah, they, I did. There were definitely a couple. There were like a, a row of the coloring books, but the first one that I saw had a George Perez Justice League of America cover. So I just mm-hmm. I picked that up and I was, I barely even glanced at the other one. So I was like, yeah, this thing is coming home with me. You know, and one thing I got, it was in our file. So it wasn't a dollar because what was ever was in your file was, you know, the, the cover price or whatever, right, which, right. you know, because, because some people can order stuff that's like really expensive. That makes sense. But uh, have you been reading the button storyline? No, I've just been sort of following along with the new, like with the updates that show up on like the news comic book news sites i kind of follow some of it along i haven't been reading any of the new comics wow i mean i haven't been reading the batman books but my son andrews buys the flash so he wanted to get in on it and i just was flipping through it wow i mean that's some there's some interesting stuff for for old school batman fans there's some interesting stuff going on in there that's all i'm gonna say (laughs) Uh, if you want to be surprised just go pick up what the the button one shot and then it's like the latest issues of flash and batman that are out they've got cool lenticular covers and you know they're actually they actually are really cool they're not like the crappy robin three (laughs) miniseries lenticular covers (laughs) i was gonna say cool lenticular covers when was the last time somebody said that and meant it I mean it. They're really well done. It's not. It's even better than your Secret War shields. They actually work, you know. Uh, so, but the, I mean the stuff that the stuff that's going on inside. It's very. Of course, this is all tying into everything about Rebirth and yep. all the connections to Watchmen and everything, which everybody knows about. But yeah, there is some seriously crazy stuff that that makes old fanboys just get a big grin on their face going on. So, <laughs> and another thing that I had no idea about. There's a Bane miniseries. Coming out by Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan. Okay, I hadn't heard that, but I saw on Comixology that like the original Bane like one shot and like all of Nightfall, they were having a sale on all of these stories with Bane. And I was like, why is why are they having a Bane sale today? Like, why is he popular all of a sudden? I know. Right. Okay, that makes sense that they're doing a right. new Bane series with Chuck Dixon and Graham. Nolan. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, it's actually called Bane Conquest, and it, the ad shows a close up of Bane's mask with a city on fire and the reflection of his lenses. And this is written by Chuck Dixon, art by Graham Nolan. So, I mean, if that's not made, tailor-made for Batman fans <laughs> of the of this, well, the later part of this era we're covering, then yeah. I don't know what is. You know, so. Yeah, they got the band back together. 
exactly. Uh, Eduardo Barreto that inked that, uh, Vengeance of the Bane, unfortunately, is no longer with us. But they got uh, Dixon and, and Graham Nolan back. So I was I was like sitting in the car, like waiting on Cindy and Target, flipping through it. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> It's like wow, and you know, I'm so for so long it was like you know, oh Chuck Dixon, you know DC won't hire Chuck Dixon, blah blah blah, or whatever. You heard different reasons why and things, and but there he is. So I don't know how involved Batman is in this, but you know, if it's Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan, I'm I'm in. So. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Uh, actually, that's a that's a that's a, that's as good a segue as we're gonna get for moving on to our next section, which is the spinner rack segment. Now, mm-hmm. Batman four hundred six that we're covering on this episode had a cover date of April nineteen eighty seven. What other noteworthy comics came out that month? Well, looking at the DC side of things, finally, Legends issue six, that series wrapped up with its concluding chapter, came out that same month. Also, sort of pertinent to something along those lines, the Mr. Miracle special. This was the first post-crisis appearance of Mr. Miracle, but, for anybody wondering, it does not set up his appearance in Justice League number one. So, for Shag and everybody who's been wondering, why did how did Mr. Miracle and, and Oberon get set up with the Justice League in that one? It is completely unknown, because it is not set up in that, in that Mr. Miracle special. Yeah, I, I mean, I still don't understand. I mean, it's. I think it was something somebody said. Oh, he was in Legends, and it's like, uh, no, he's not. He's not in Legends. Nope. <laughs> he's just. He just. He's there, and 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 really, he other than that special and appearances in Who's Who and the Superpowers third miniseries, he hadn't had hardly any play uh, any time before this. He had yeah. no no appearances. So it's really it is a real head scratcher. It's just maybe somebody at DC decided. We're going to try to push the Kirby stuff, you know, more, which they they definitely did post-crisis. So, yeah, there you go. The uh, Secret Origins issue 13 came out this month, uh, topical for this podcast. That was the Nightwing issue, Um, Mm -hmm. and it also featured the, the Secret Origins of Johnny Thunder and The Whip. I know what's going there. <laughs> yeah, that sound you just heard makes a lot more sense if you listen to the Secret Origins podcast. Uh, episode thirteen is one of my favorites that I did throughout that whole series. That was just a, so much fun. It was it was the first one that I really put a lot of. It was the first one that I didn't get the episode out by midnight because I was putting so much uh, special effects and sound effects and everything into that one to make it. But that was, there were three really fun discussions on that, uh, uh, and, every, and not just with the whip. But also with the stuff leading up to the Johnny Thunder discussion and then uh, my talk with uh, Tom Panarese about Nightwing. Uh, that was a fun episode. And actually, J. David Weeder just like messaged me a couple of weeks ago and said he he listened to that episode and he uh, like had to pull over from laughing so he didn't crash his car. <laughs> well, you had the whole John, everybody beating up on yep. Johnny Thunder thing uh, with all the different voices coming in, and then and uh, you know the the whip of course. And <laughs> I always kind of liked the whip from the appearance in All Star Squadron number thirty one where yeah. they had the whole All Star Squadron for the first time. The whole team showed up, so you know I'm glad you covered the whip. And I I'm saying the whip as many times as possible, <laughs> so you just have to put that in. Uh, but the Nightwing discussion, this is like – this issue came out like literally two months before Dick Grayson's backstory is screwed all to hell yeah. by Max Allen Collins. <laughs> yeah, not a whole lot of coordination between the offices at that point. <laughs> no, and uh, boy, I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> yep. 
Uh, speaking of uh, loading all of the sound effects into this segment, what else came out this month from DC was the first issue of the miniseries Shazam! The New Beginning. Yes, I was going to bring that up and say it repeatedly just so. <laughs> Shazam! was in, you know, Captain Marvel was in Legends number six. He said Shazam! Cause, <laughs> and then Shazam! The New Beginning come out. And, you know, it wasn't a very long beginning for, it was a new beginning for Shazam! that didn't last very long. You know, it's like I, I've got it in my notes how many times I could say Shazam! in one sentence. But, yeah. So. <laughs> the Witch! Shazam! There you go. Oh, God! <laughs> So many tracks on this now. <laughs> um, another number one issue that came out this month, The Spectre. And I don't think I have like a ghostly sound effect that goes along with that. So just, yeah, The Spectre, number one came out. This was the... Uh, <laughs> this is the Doug Mensher Menick, or however his name is pronounced, uh, written series uh, with art on this first issue by Gene Colan. I, I know that this came up, I think, on uh, First Strike, the Invasion podcast recently, because Siskoid was talking about it. I've tried to get into this series because I like the creative team involved and I like the character. There's just something about this run of the Spectre. It just, it's very meh. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I don't think Frank brought up this kind of a lost Spectre series, and it. It kind of is. It was just kind of. It was kind of there, but it didn't didn't seem to connect. It's like Doug Doug Mitch was off doing some, you know, kind of off. Once he was off the Batman and Detective books, he was kind of off over in his own little corner of the the DCU in a lot of ways, and uh, coming up with different concepts. And unfortunately, none of them seemed to to click and last very long. But. So. Yeah, I, he had Jim Corgan, the Spectre, as sort of like dueling personalities, and it felt sort of at, at times like a watered-down Incredible Hulk approach. It's just, yeah, not not necessarily what I was going for. But um, anyway, a few other things that I had on my notes. Uh, Who's Who, Volume 26, this was the Wonder Woman and other characters around her issue. And then, something you would recognize, Who's Who in Star Trek, issue 2. Woohoo! Yeah, that's the last regular issue of the original Who's Who with Wonder Woman, and it's the second and last issue of Who's Who in Star Trek, which we, me, Rob, Siskoid, and Gene Hendricks covered over on Who's Who in Star Trek. And I believe, as we record this today, there may be a new Who's Who in the Legion out. <laughs> I'll believe it when I see it. Just I do saying. too. It's, I mean, Heroes Points is coming out more than that nowadays, you know? So, I mean, come on, right? Come on, Shag. I'm not saying I don't trust him. I'm just, you know, we've been burned before. Right. One thing that hasn't ended is New Teen Titans still hasn't ended that damn Brother Blood storyline. There's a close-up of Brother Blood on the cover. It's like, my God, that was the longest protracted story. I mean, Chris Claremont was like, come on already, you know? <laughs> I mean, geez. Now, Batman and Robin do guest star in yeah. that. The, the, this, we, I think we're one issue away from the end. And this is uh, one of those cases where Jason Todd is a honorary or reserve Titan member in good standing. So he technically was a member of the Teen Titans. Although, you know, Wolfman's pretty much treating him, like most people are at this point, as the pre-crisis Jason. And, you know, we're still two issues away from all that going away. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Okay, one thing that jumped out, we got to mention this because he's a favorite amongst the Who's Who crowd as we were talking about Who's Who. Adventures of the Outsiders number 44, which of course reprints the the uh, Baxter series Outsiders. They are taking on the Duke of Oil because <laughs> you have to mention the robot guy in the 10-gallon hat, you know, the Duke, 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 Duke of Oil. So. <laughs> Um, speaking of Mort's, our buddy D-Man, everyone's favorite stinky superhero D-Man, uh, is large and in charge on the cover of Captain America number 328, and I didn't look this up, but my guess is that is the first appearance of D-Man, at least in costume, because it's like, is it Daredevil? No. Is it Wolverine? No. It's D-Man. Or so, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I bet that's his first one in the costume, yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. so the costume used yep. to confuse the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, because because I knew it was essentially Daredevils, but he's got on Wolverine's mask, yeah, and it's yeah. like, and it's actually not a bad costume. That's the weird thing. <laughs> I know it's kind of a cool. Well, I've always I've always liked that. I always thought it would be cool if Daredevil went back to that costume for some reason, like just for like a, a short a short run or like a mini series or something. Because I like that costume. I like the color contrast because you don't see a lot of costumes like that. But I, yeah, I just remember seeing him one day, and I think I even like I just I I was so confused. I was so I had to know. I think I even approached like the the retailer at the comic store, like the guy behind the counter. I was just like, who is? I was like, is this Daredevil? He looks weird. And the guy's like, no, that's D Man. I was like, well, that's not a real name. <laughs> I was like, like D Man, that's not a thing. Like, who would have a name that stupid? And he's like, you, you gotta know, I gotta understand. I was like, alright, so, but it's like, it's like I didn't answer my question because who would be stupid enough to have a name like D Man? So wasn't it short for Demolition Man? Yeah, or yeah, something it was. Like, yeah, I think, yeah. It's like, well, the later on Demolition Man worked for Sylvester Stallone, so they should have just went for that, you know. Right, right. <laughs> um, up your alley, uh, Darth Vader apparently shows up in the Droids comic from Star with issue number seven. Yep. I mean, there's there's Darth Vader's mask with uh, 3PO and R2 reflected in his lenses there, uh, kind of like that Bane ad that I was just talking about. Yeah. Right. Uh, so is that considered canon droids? Is it still? <laughs> <laughs> in our hearts, always. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> in, in my heart, there are only three things that are canon. Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and droids. <laughs> Those are the only things that are really canon. Not even Return of the Jedi. Huh? No, no. The Leia is his sister thing. That's stupid. I don't. That's not part of my head canon. No. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> well, the 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 Ewoks Battle of Endor movies in my canon. That's all. <laughs> <what. laughs> that would be great to have the Ewok movies in your head canon, but not Return of the Jedi. Where they there you go. <laughs> uh, speaking of in our uh, canon and different different versions of the same thing, uh, G.I. Joe mm-hmm. uh, issue uh, number 58 features the debut of the new armored Cobra Commander. Yes, it and does. I bought that issue and I bought that action figure. Yeah. <laughs> It was good. This was a this was one where he found out uh, a little secret. Well, I think this is when he finds out that his son Billy is still alive because uh, right. we see his son still in a in a hospital bed on the cover, and he had been suspected dead since like uh, issue forty yes, something. Was it even earlier? It might have been like thirty something. It was. It was a big. There was a big death issue when like three supporting characters are all killed off by scrap iron. So, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So like for like two years, everybody just assumed he had been dead. So yeah, that was a good issue. X Men versus the Avengers issue one came out this month. Mm. 
Yeah. And I know I've read that, but it left zero impression on me. I couldn't tell you what it's about. There were all these versus miniseries. There was Mephisto versus the Fantastic Four. There were, I mean, they were like throwing them out like crazy right now. It's it's hard to keep up. I was just trying to, Marvel once again was just trying to fill the shelf with as many comics as possible, I think, to maybe run DC off or something. I don't know. (laughs) Um, One thing we should definitely mention Justice League of America number 261. The final issue of JLA, the original run. And, well, technically the original team ended with Justice League Annual number two. Thanks, Aquaman. <laughs> uh, but this is the end of Justice League Detroit, and uh, no one really cared. Uh, so, <laughs> And Shag's like, oh, now come on! you know. Uh, but, yeah, nobody really cared, Shag, sorry. So. <laughs> Anything else from this month? I mean, there's plenty more out there, but I think we've hit the hot spots. All right, folks. We are going to take a quick promo break. We will be back in a minute to talk about Batman Year One Part 3. Don't go away. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great. So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website, www.overlookeddarknight.com, launch in May of 2017. From the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. Batman 406 is cover dated April 1987, but according to Mike's Amazing World, it actually hit the shelves on January 8th, the first Batman comic released in 1987. The cover by David Mazzuchelli shows a Gotham SWAT team searching the wreckage of an exploded apartment building looking for Batman. Unbeknownst to the cops, the Dark Knight is actually stalking them in the background. What do you think of this cover? Now, this cover, I, I mean, it's great. It's fantastic. But, you know, it's not as iconic as the other, the previous two covers because, you know, it's not that iconic image of Batman that's like, this is the the legend of Batman type thing. But still, I mean, again, it's just amazing. This cover's got a lot going on in it. You get a lot of background detail. You really can feel you're in a burnout old building with the timbers and the rafters falling and, and the brick and the, the flashlights of the SWAT guys and all their gear and their guns. But yet your eye goes straight to Batman, who's behind him, you know, and he's he's a small figure. He's basically a black blob with, you know, <laughs> a couple of highlights on his cape and two white eyes. But, man, you can't miss him. It's it's just another Mazzuchelli masterpiece. Yep. Yeah. I agree that this one on the surface doesn't seem as iconic because we don't get a good hero shot of Batman. He is kind of in the background, even though it is the focal point. Your eye goes to him right away, and it's 
That's just a wonderful trick that the artist does. But I love this cover, and the image and the idea that is encapsulated in this cover had a really profound impact on me as a kid when I looked at this. Because even though, I mean, I might have read Dark Knight Returns before this one, but I think this one more than anything, like, I really started thinking about Batman as a vigilante and what that meant, uh, and how he would not be a friend of the cops, that cops wouldn't trust Batman, that they would be afraid of him, which would mean he would have to do his job while fighting both the criminals and avoiding the police, or sometimes having to fight the police just to survive at the same time. And that sort of fighting a war on two fronts idea made him, to me, that much tougher, that much cooler, you know, in my impressionable young mind. It sort of cemented Batman as this loner, it's him against the entire world type of idea. Now, as we have seen, like, with so many aspects of his character, this was something that really started to come to the fore in this era, and it was cool then. Has that idea been taken too far? has this idea that Batman is truly alone, that the cops, the people, they're all afraid of him, they don't trust him, that he would be hunted. Does that foster this idea that he is paranoid, that he won't allow himself to love anybody, that he won't really, you know, even with the Robins, he's going to keep them at an arm's distance? I think we've seen... I've seen I, we have seen that play out too far. We have seen that get like take us to the point where Batman is just uh, unlikable, and, and I think that is unfortunate. But it, I think it starts right around here, and certainly for me, it starts with this cover, this image. But I, I still like that idea. I just wish it didn't have to be taken to the extreme that it was. Yeah, I, I can, I can definitely see where you're coming from there. I mean, in a lot of ways, this harkens back to the earliest Batman stories. I mean, the cops were after him in the very first Batman mm-hmm. issue, you know. So, but yeah, because Miller did it, because Frank did it, then it's gospel, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's basically, I mean, basically, that's what it amounts to. Anything that Miller did, the creators that followed him took it, and whether or not, I mean, they didn't, they didn't care that. You know, Batman was at the beginning of his career or at the end of his career in both of Miller's pieces, his his Dark Knight and then his Batman Year One. They just they wanted that was successful. It's what everyone was crazy about. And they wanted to play in, you know, the Frank Miller sandbox. And so, you know, they you know, you get a Batman that. You know, Gordon's like his only ally on the police force, and yeah. and sometimes even that's strained. And and then you get, you know, and then and then like you said, that because he is so alone, and he's you know a one man army and stuff. Then that brings in the question: Okay, well, the, where does Robin fit in, and where does this character fit in? And yeah, so it it does have kind of an odd domino effect, but. It's again. It's one of those cases where you really, despite some of the awful, awful things he did with the character later, uh, which we try to act like don't exist. You know, you can't really blame Miller for that. It's the way the creators right. have interpreted what he did. So, right. All right, we ready to get into this? Yes. All right. Year One, Part Three: Black Dawn is written by Frank Miller, drawn by Mazzucchelli, lettered by Todd Klein, colored by Richmond Lewis, and edited by Denny O'Neill. The Batman falls through fire, past burning derelicts that he cannot save. The tenement building, firebombed by the Gotham police, crumbles. As Batman scrambles to find shelter, his utility belt catches fire. He removes it and tosses it away as the thermite in one of the pouches ignites, destroying most of his gadgets and tools. 
The sun isn't even up yet on the morning of June 7th, but the fire from the Robinson Park building casts a rosy morning glow over Gotham. It's enough that Holly, the way-too-young prostitute that Bruce Wayne met on his reconnaissance mission months ago, can see the fire and the cops and the commotion. Holly's roommate, Selina Kyle, is roused from sleep by dozens of cats on her bed, pleading for their breakfast. Holly tells Selina about the explosions. They catch part of the story on the television. The reporter says that the police have cornered the Batman in the blown-out building, and a SWAT team is moving in for the kill. Selina and Holly get their coats and head to the scene. Outside the building, paramedics treat Lieutenant Jim Gordon for the wounds he suffered when the runaway truck crashed. The EMTs put an unconscious Detective Essen in the back of an ambulance. Brandon, the head of the SWAT team, leads three squads of six into the apartment. Commissioner Loeb's orders, hunt down and kill the Batman. Gordon can only sit back and watch in disgust and think about how Batman risked his life to save an old woman, how he's only wounded and cornered right now because he put his own life in danger to protect an innocent. As the SWAT units fan out, they discover more and more dead homeless. Apparently, the building wasn't as abandoned as the commissioner made it sound when he ordered it bombed. Brandon leads some men from Unit 3 down into the superintendent's apartment, after stationing two men up above. But Batman climbed up the ruined chimney, appearing right behind the guards and knocking them out. He drops a large pillar on top of the trap door, trapping Brandon and the rest of his unit in the basement. Batman drops his last gas pellet down the chimney, flooding the super's room with knockout gas. Out on the street, Sergeant Merkel tells Gordon that Brandon's men need help. Gordon shrugs and lights a cigarette. He's probably never been happier in his life to have been ordered not to interfere. Meanwhile, Holly and Selina gather with the crowd of spectators behind the police cordon, and in a helicopter up above, Commissioner Loeb chides his police sniper for not being able to spot Batman in the wreckage and shoot him. Back in the tenement, the rest of the SWAT team converges on the lobby. Batman hides under a set of stairs where he discovers the only other survivor of the firebomb, a Siamese cat. With his belt destroyed, Batman has only two tools left, a blowgun with three darts and a small remote device. He presses the button on the remote, which broadcasts a very specific ultrasonic signal. The frequency is too high for human ears, but it's very attractive to bats, such as those that dwell in the cave beneath Wayne Manor. The SWAT team tries to lift the pillar off the trapdoor. Brandon climbs up the chimney, having avoided the knockout gas. Before he can warn the others, Batman hits him with a dart from the blowgun, a dart laced with anaconda venom that knocks Brandon out immediately. But that gives away Batman's position, and the SWAT opens fire. Batman dives in and out of the shadows, avoiding the hail of machine gun fire. One of the SWAT members, Officer Pratt, sees the Siamese cat out of the corner of his eye and turns to shoot it. Batman grabs the cat and throws it out the window to safety. Pratt's wild tracking fire sends a cascade of bullets out the window that narrowly misses the crowd gathered outside. One stray bullet hits Merkel in the shoulder. Gordon pulls him to safety as the Siamese cat jumps over their squat car and lands in Selina's arms. The cops surround Batman, who took another bullet to his arm saving the cat and is hiding behind a support column. With all of his strength, honed from practicing kicking through trees outside his mansion, Batman kicks the support column. It snaps and the roof caves in on top of the SWAT team. Batman finds Officer Pratt in the rubble, the guy who shot him, and tried to shoot the cat. Batman wails on him and punches him through the wall. The crowd outside erupts in delight. Single-handedly taking on the brutally oppressive cops, Batman has become a hero to the people. They begin to cheer for him. But then they begin to scream as more and more onlookers gaze up into the sky and see the early morning sun blotted out by black wings. 
hundreds or thousands of tiny flapping wings. The ultrasonic emitter Batman turned on earlier summoned every bat in Gotham County to his position. People scream and run. The street becomes chaos as cops and pedestrians alike duck for cover. The commissioner in his helicopter sees Batman take advantage of the disorder to steal a police motorcycle and ride off. The cloud of bats follow him, as does one patrol car that doesn't see Batman ditch the motorcycle and the ultrasonic emitter until the car, lost in the cloud of bats, drives off the edge of a pier and crashes into Gotham Harbor. In the chaos, Batman was able to slip away from the police net. He snuck into a department store before it opened and took a three-piece suit, putting the cash for it down on the counter. In the days that follow, the cops and spectators who were bitten or scratched by bats, this includes Selina and Holly, all have to get rabies shots. Several of Brandon's men are hospitalized, most notably Pratt. Gordon spends the time after thinking about his one possible suspect, Bruce Wayne, who has both the means and the motive for an operation like the Batman. But Wayne's butler, Alfred, tells Gordon that Bruce has been skiing in Switzerland for weeks. Bruce does indeed go to Switzerland to secure this alibi, paying off would-be friends and hangers-on who go so far as to impersonate him when Gordon calls from America. The story they tell Gordon is that Bruce had a skiing accident that left both of his legs and one arm broken. But apparently all of his limbs are doing just fine, despite the gunshot wounds, because after his alibi chumps are asleep, Bruce does go skiing. Back in Gotham, Detective Essen points out that these alleged broken bones Wayne claims to have, should they be treated with casts, could cover the gunshot wounds they know Batman suffered. As she's talking, though, Gordon is barely listening to her. He's just looking at her. After work, they share a cab home. On June 17th, Selina Kyle beats Stan the Pimp bloody and tells Holly that they're going into a different line of work. Meanwhile, Jim Gordon and Sarah Essen have started leaving work together and getting a cup of coffee to unwind before going home. Their chats become more personal, and Gordon finds it impossible to think of her as just a cop anymore. They leave the diner and walk together. When it starts to rain, they duck into the shelter of a nearby doorway. Huddled together, trying to stay dry, they give in to their attraction and kiss. Then Essen gets in a cab and drives off. On August 7th, Selina Kyle dons her new costume for the first time, showing it off for Holly. Then the Catwoman leaps out the window and embarks on her new venture. That same night, Jim Gordon faces a long, dark night of the soul. His marriage is falling apart. He and Barbara, who is seven months pregnant, fight all of the time. He's never home, because when he's not working, he's with Sarah. And while his personal life seems to be unraveling, Gordon can't even take solace in the job. Batman has forced him to question everything. Batman's a criminal. Gordon's a cop. But the cops in Gotham are wrong. The top brass are in bed with the wrong people, and the rank-and-file cops are used as thugs and killers for the mayor and the police commissioner. Whereas Batman, he saved an old woman. He saved a freaking cat. And he didn't even steal the suit making his escape. He paid for it. Gordon sits up in bed, holding his service revolver, no longer sure if he can recognize the good guys from the bad. End of part three. All right, Chris, what did you think of this one? You know, this is kind of, this is, of course, this is the big action set piece of the entire series. And, and of course, Chris Nolan took note of this, yeah. uh, <laughs> David Goyer and, 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 and Nolan's brother, because uh, a good chunk of this, most people, if you haven't read Batman Year One and you're listening to this, you're like, oh, wait, the bats. That's like <laughs> Batman Begins. Yeah, so 
Uh, which I always I kept hoping that at some point some movie would do that because I just thought that was the coolest yeah. one of the coolest things I'd ever seen the deal with the bats and I I really did like how you know just on uh, you know you kind of take for granted I mean after a while you get used to things as readers like Batman and Spider Man and Hawkman that they're just these they, they these guys that just they they have their shtick is like you know an animal or whatever it is or or the flash that he runs fast and you just kind of take for granted that that's what they are. That's what their, you know, totem is, whatever you want to call it. And suddenly Batman's just a guy, another guy in a Cape. Uh, but Miller really emphasized the bat in Batman in both the dark Knight, you know, because he showed that the bat had scared Bruce as a kid. And, and then, you know, the bat coming crashing through the window in both the dark Knight and year one, instead of just flying through it. And, and now he's using bats. And I mean, I think that's they like really another case where Miller really just broke the character down back to his essence, you know, distilled it back to the like the original formula. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's like the original Coca-Cola with real sugar, you know, or something. You know? It's, yeah, <laughs> it's it's it's, it's kind of like that, you know, it, and uh, I think, uh, you know, this issue is just it's it's it starts out in the middle of action. I mean, Batman's falling through a burning building. I mean, what a, what a great way to start, but I love, I love the, on the title page, the text, they've got him cornered. They've got him outnumbered. They've got him trapped. They're in trouble. (laughs) I've always loved that. I yeah. always love that. That's so good. <laughs> yeah, the bats has always been such a, a signature moment. And you're right, like that that needed to be in a movie and it was great that they finally used it. And I think they used it pretty well in Batman Begins. Um mm-hmm. it was a slightly smaller scale, but it still looked really, really cool. Uh especially the the shot from down below when it shows him dropping through sort of like the, the whole tunnel of the of the bats. Uh those mm-hmm. were really cool. It's a cool moment because from a tactical standpoint it shows how technologically savvy he is that he was able to create something like this uh the strategy that he would use to employ this to get away from the cops but in terms of like the public perspective it feels almost supernatural like the cops are swarming in on this guy and all of a sudden freaking like bats just like descend out of the sky <laughs> and like surround us and like attack us and everything like oh my god are we fighting dracula here like that's what it it kind of seems like that would be the case so it's it secures his legend as as a mystery and as as a you know a science fiction character. It's it's very cool. Uh, go, I mean, as you said, this is a big action piece. The Batman's escape from this tenement building and his fighting with the cops takes up you know two thirds of this story, uh, and the rest is a very sort of very quick ex- escalation of the uh, of Gordon and his subplot with Detective Essen. But sticking first with the uh, with the fight and everything, uh, there were a few things that I, I a few notes that I had with uh, Holly and Selena. My first note was, "Holy cats! Really, Selena? You get twelve cats just show up on your bed like in the morning? Like that's a lot right. of cats." It's, I don't want to know what that apartment smells like. I'm sorry. I, know, I, know. <laughs> I mean, and, and I like cats. I'm more of a dog guy, but we have yeah. a cat. I like cats. But, you know, I mean, I know people that have that many cats and oh, my God, <laughs> it's like, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I hope I didn't offend anybody that's listening, but you got to take special care. I mean, you can, it can be done, mm-hmm. but special care has to be taken to have the your place not smell like one giant litter box. So <laughs> 12 cats the, is a lot of cats. 
I'm just yes. saying. <laughs> Especially in a small apartment. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, in a, in yeah. a city that probably doesn't smell good on a good day anyway, in, in the summer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you definitely get, like we said, this is Gotham is the New York of the 70s before the urban renewal and the cleanup and, you know, all that stuff. So, yeah, it's, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Just, I just thought of an, uh, an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I don't know if you ever watch it, but two, oh, yeah, yeah. two of the char- Danny DeVito's character and, and Charlie, they they eat cat food and like huff paint in order to pass out at the end of the night because they have so many cats outside their apartment like hissing and meowing and making so much noise that the only way for them to sleep is to actually poison themselves with huffing paint and whatever chemicals are in the cat food. And DeAndre's trying to say, the cats are outside your room because you have all these open cans of cat food in your apartment. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Anyway, anyway, moving on. Um, Back to that scene. I was really annoyed with the the phonetic way that Holly's dialogue was portrayed when she's like Selena, like like she overemphasized like every like middle syllable and everything. It just yeah. kind of like, it was hard to read, and I was like, oh god, I I felt bad for this character being probably a thirteen year old or whatever forced into this into this lifestyle, and, but now I hate her just because of the way she talks. <laughs> yeah, I've always I've always kind of found that annoying. I mean, I. Yeah. I guess it kind of gives her some character, but the, uh, Miller doesn't do enough with her otherwise to make her appealing beyond right. the fact that her situation is the only thing you really care, that right. you feel sorry for any kid that would be in that situation. Her as a character, you don't. Right. And then, I mean, that'd be my one criticism. And I mean, she, you know, Selena wasn't even in the last chapter, so we've, right. we've come back to her now. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know... <laughs> But yeah, she, you know, when I first read this, like, I remember thinking that at first it was a mistake. Like, why do they keep, oh, wait a minute, that's, that, you know, because I'd never seen that done in a comic before where they had emphasized, you know, like certain letters to, so that you sound it out in a certain way, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, it, 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 you know, this was all, this was new to me. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do like that Selena's line, uh, maybe Brandon's corner to Jaywalker. <laughs> So I like the idea of that, but I also – it like threw up like this big red flag in my head. Like would Selena know the head of the SWAT team by name? Like I guess if he really does have a reputation for excessive violence in the city, he might have been on the news. Like there might be like reports of, you know, like like if Harvey Dent was trying to indict him or something or if he'd been like like cited for excessive violence or these type of things. Like he – he might be no, but like still, it's kind of like how, how many people like in the city know the name of a sergeant or a lieutenant in the SWAT team? Gotham's so corrupt. I'm I'm sure you know they're, they they go down there and 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 you know work over the, the the pimps and get the money off of them, and so they won't you know turn them in, and yeah. they're all involved together, and you know who knows maybe Brandon's coming down for you know and his men for free ones to keep their mouth shut or something i don't i don't know you <laughs> right. know yeah, i mean you can write a whole nother story about that that's true but yeah backtracking a little bit one thing that i think's really neat that uh, i wanted to mention i forgot was you know miller immediately gets rid of batman's utility belt mm-hmm. uh i think that's i mean you know batman you know through a lot of media more than anything like through the adam west tv show and especially through the super friends had basically you know if batman and robin didn't have their utility belt on the super friends they were completely useless yeah i mean i love the super friends but yeah batman and robin were basically 
the bodies that walk their utility belts around. I mean, <laughs> you, know, it, it, you know, I mean, it's without them, they were useless. So, uh, you know, I think it's really neat that Miller, you know, he immediately takes it away. Now Batman's got to survive with, of course, he still gets by with a gadget, but he's got to be clever enough to hide it in his boots. Mm-hmm. He's got a blowgun. He's got a few other things. You know, it's it was really sharp. And of course, you know, like you said at the end with with your your synopsis, you know, Gordon's realizing, you know, this this city's so corrupt, but you know, this guy that's supposed to be my enemy has saved this old woman. He tried to save the cat, and we see that the Batman's tumbling through a, a collapsing building that's on fire, and the thing he's most concerned about is he can't save this homeless man that's burning to death, you know, over on the other side of it. He can't stop. I mean, we've beat this drum every episode, but you just when you reread this, you realize that that Miller is still writing the very heroic, very moral, you know, Batman of of the 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 golden, the later golden and, and silver age in a lot of ways, in the Bronze Age. Uh, he's not the god awful all star Batman that's just a horrible, horrible human being, uh, you know. So. Right. Uh, you know, so I mean, the bat, the fact that Batman just he keeps he keeps talking about it. he can't save him, he can't save him, and then of course, you know, the cat and everything, which we'll get into. But yeah, it's it. You know, we I know we I know I keep beating that drum, but it just every issue I read, it's like yes, this is mm-hmm. the you can have a Batman that is actually a good person. Right. <laughs> You know, that's a heroic person that you can uh, aspire to, that you can look up to, and he can still be a badass. You know, they can coexist. This proves it, this very issue, because Batman is at his most badassest in this issue. But he's also a very compassionate, caring human being. He's portrayed as such, you know, and it, it can it can work. You can't get more obvious than saving a cat. Like that is right. that is literally a shorthand in like screenwriting and filmmaking terms of how do you get your audience to like your character? He saves the cat. Like he exactly. does that thing. He goes out of his way to do a good act for something less than him. It's like that is the obvious shortcut. And Miller does that. Yes, he saves a cat. He even takes a bullet for the cat. Right. Um, so it's yeah, it's clearly obvious. Um, and you're right. He is. He's concerned about the homeless. And that was one of the things that I liked. And I liked the way they revealed it. It wasn't gruesome, but it just sort of it helped you kind of identify like the thinking. Like as Brandon's team is kind of like fanning out and searching, you just hear over the radio. It's like, oh, I found something. Nope, it's another dead homeless guy. Oh, I found. Oh, it's a dog. Oh, there's not. There's a body. Nope, that's another dead. It's like how many dead homeless people? And like they're even commenting. I thought this building was supposed to be abandoned. That's right. Nope. The commissioner just told you whatever you needed to hear in order to sleep at night while they bomb the place. But uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even you're talking about saving a cat, even in Superman, the movie, yeah. Superman takes time out to save a cat out of a tree, even though he's, you know, saving Air Force One and catching Lois's helicopter and you know, all that stuff at night. But, you know, so, yeah, that's a that's a great shorthand. Yeah, I, I caught something. I, I've caught this. I don't think I ever caught this before, but I don't know if you I don't know if you notice this. I wonder if there is a Gordon text caption missing in panel one on page four. The one caption in that panel reads. The fifth load goes up. I pray it will be the last. Then in panel two, the first caption reads, he will be soon anyway. Brandon and the collection of sociopathy calls a SWAT team will see to that. So this caption is referring to Batman. It's almost like there should be a caption that says, I wonder if Batman's still alive or if he's surviving, you know, know, because it says he will be soon anyway. You know, so it's basically like Batman might still be alive, but he'll soon be dead. So. 
I don't, and it's not in. I checked my trade paperback. It's it's not. It's missing there too. It those two captions don't make sense together. There's something missing. It, it's never, in my to my knowledge, been added back in or something. Yeah, you're right. I I noticed that too when I was rereading it, and I forgot to put it in my notes, but. Yeah, it definitely seems like he's continuing a thought that we don't get the first part of. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, you're, you're right. Like I think there was a there was a caption missing or some kind of thought that he was referring to Batman being presumed dead. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. or maybe if like that was supposed to be continuing some thought from like the news or whatever, but we don't get the news yet. So right. Yeah, interesting. No, I agree. Back to what you said. Yeah, I like that Batman has to ditch his belt right away. I mean. It's he's in a bu- he survived a building explosion collapsing. Now the SWAT team is out to get him. They got machine guns. They've got him outnumbered. They've got him cornered. You know all the things mentioned on the title page. What else can we do to raise the stakes? Oh, now Batman is pretty much just down to his hands. Like mm-hmm. he does. Like all of his tools, all of his gadgets that we think of, like his weapons, as you said with the the super friends. Nope, we're gonna take all of that away from. Him. He's got a blowgun that he uses once, and I don't even think he needed to use it. Like, I don't think Brandon was really much of a threat at that point. I think he just wanted to knock Brandon out, honestly. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> just shut him up for something. And honestly, it was kind of, the one thing Batman did that was kind of stupid was that, because when he did that, it just drew their fire over to Right, him. right, exactly. I mean, if you watch, it's like, why didn't he just try to sneak out, you know, instead yeah. of... You know, of course, the building was surrounded. I don't know how he could have snuck out anyway, but right. unless, <laughs> yeah, unless they were making, unless they were trying to make the point, it just wasn't conveyed that Brandon knew where he was. Like Brandon could see him because he was looking the other direction. Like mm. while, while all the cops are looking at him climbing out of this chimney, he's looking behind them and he sees Batman skulking around. Like if that was the case, maybe. But um, right, yeah. I still think it was kind of weird. Like when the gas can when the gas bomb is dropped down the chimney, he screams for them to put their gas masks on, and then he climbs up and says the others weren't fast enough to put their gas mask on. But he's not wearing a gas mask. Like where was right. this? <laughs> yeah, he must have taken it off as he was climbing up the chimney. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I think it. You know, the, the this is the first time Batman Batman comes up through the chimney and nerve pinches two of the SWAT cops. And that's the first time I ever saw anybody but Spock do that. I'm like, oh, you can really do that. <laughs> if you're not a Vulcan, that'll work. I didn't know that. So. <laughs> like space balls. What the hell are you doing? Right. A Vulcan neck pinch? Oh, ah, stupid. You got it much too high. It's down here where the shoulder meets the neck. <laughs> yeah, <there it> <laughs> Thanks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like this? <laughs> So, um, uh, I love it when Batman gets to walkie-talkie and tells uh, Brandon uh, to get his men out. I can't guarantee their safety. You know, <laughs> he's surrounded by heavily armed men yeah. ordered to kill him. But this is Batman's statement. You know, <laughs> now that's badass. Yeah. <laughs> I liked when um, when Batman kicks through the the big stone pillar that is holding up the, the roof, basically, and I was like. He's already got a bullet through that leg. I was like, that's a mighty powerful kick. And then I went back. I was like, oh, yeah, chapter one, we actually saw him kicking down a tree. Yep. Yeah, we've been set up for this. Yeah, he can do that. This This is believable. This is in character based on what we've already seen him do during his training. So I thought that was it, a nice payoff. And not only that, it's almost the exact same drawing. I mean, yeah. it's basically Mazzuccelli's, uh, you know, swiping his own panel on purpose it's a callback you yeah know, it's, no, definitely yeah. It, it's it's definitely you know it's meant to to show that yeah this remember this here we go you know he's putting it to good use <laughs> one thing i thought was interesting is uh batman actually refers to the his headquarters uh as the bat cave yes. uh, or maybe he's not quite moved in yet but he calls it 
the bat he says the bat cave i call it yeah. which kind of contradicts miller's own dark knight where he says dick named their car the batmobile as a name a kid would come up with you know so i i thought that was kind of neat so here batman's like he he's he's heavily into the branding you yeah. know he's, yeah. he's he's like i'm gonna call this the bat cave you know which I, you know, to me, that's a part of Batman. There's, there's things about people that you're like, oh, I didn't know you were into that. You know, that type of stuff that that's kind of a contradiction to yes. what you think otherwise of them. And to me, that's that's Batman. That why else does he keep all those trophies? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a part of him that's there's a. There, I mean, despite the the exterior, there's got to be a part of him that's got to either it's you can say it's because he's still the damaged little boy and he wants to have toys or you know what whatever but there's a slightly whimsical side to him that would keep all this stuff Mm -hmm. you know and they would brand everything i mean yeah that's part of the shtick that you know the to to reinforce the image and you know create the fear and stuff but he doesn't have to go to the lengths he does uh in the comics to to brand everything so you know, I, I I like that myself. Yeah, I I do like that. I I that contradiction has never really bothered me. I mean, there you can find kind of simplistic ways of justifying it, or you can look for sort of deeper psychological reasons for why he would do stuff like that. I mean, he has chosen an enemy that he can never win. Like Batman's war on crime can never end. He will never he will never win that battle ultimately. Mm-hmm. So finding little trophies, little mementos of his victories, at, like the the more garish and memorable ones, like a giant card or a giant coin or a giant, you know, dinosaur or something like that, <laughs> just can help assuage that, that feeling that it is helpless. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a more tangible proof that he saved lives, he has stopped bad men at times. So, yeah, there's that. Uh, I think it's really neat, you know, of course, the deal with the cat, Batman, you know, like we said, it, he befriends the cat. He apologizes to the cat in his <laughs> caption box. Sorry, I messed up your, your home. And and then, of course, they, they shoot at the cat and he throws it out the window to get it out of the way. And if, I love the fact that it just jumps. Selena's just like nonchalantly standing there <laughs> with her arms open as the cat's hit. I mean, Mazzuccelli does a great, you can just, you know, you can just see her going, here's another one, you know, yeah. kind of like, come here, come here, come on. You know, that's kind of, and, and it's kind of, I can totally see that because my mom had some weird Snow White-like animal powers. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, she'd be standing in the yard and like birds would land on her finger and stuff. I mean, it was, it was, I don't know how the hell to explain it. It just happened. Squirrels would like take corn out of her hand. I mean, it's, it, yeah. So, I mean, this, this can happen. So, you know, and of course she's Catwoman, yeah. of course. But I mean, I, I love that that little bit. You know, she's just like her arms are out, and here comes the cat. And right before that, with Merkel getting shot in the shoulder, that was I remember that being kind of shocking. You know, yeah. and you're just like, man, these guys are a bunch of reckless nuts. I yeah. mean, they're really shooting out into the, you know, just shooting wild. It's just it just continues to paint them as like you just want to see Batman just you know kick their ass. Yeah. <laughs> In the original floppy copy, um, the page as Batman is escaping on the bike, and we kind of—it's a transitional page. We get Gordon narrating how Batman slipped away, how everybody's got to get rabies vaccines or rabies shots in their asses, which you can see Holly and Selina laying down. Do not look happy. Um, yeah, and all this—is that page like black and white or gray tone on on the original copy? It is. Um, no, <laughs> everything is cast in blue. 
There's okay. a. Uh, it almost looks like a who's who surprint. I mean, it's not. It's not. The inks are black, mm. but everything is in the shades of blue. All the coloring are, is in shades of blue. And honestly, there's a part of me that actually, in one, in one of the rare cases, I like the floppy better than the than the trade paperback. Huh, as I'm yeah. looking at both of them, it kind of works. I don't know. It just it just gives it a more a, more of an odd you know uh, visual little visual punch there. The coloring in this one. Overall, I mean, doesn't seem as different. I mean, yeah, it is brighter. There's more like Selena's got like a bright magenta coat on, uh, you know, instead of the like, muted blue when the the bats are mm-hmm. when she's crouched down with Holly and everything. But overall, there's there's some colors that Lewis brought over from the from the floppy more. I mean, Batman is colored more traditionally blue. Uh, you know, in gray rather than the the muted the muted grays and his highlights on his you know cape and cowl and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it, it is a little bit closer than the other issues have for the most part. Yeah. My my favorite. I I just saw it again. But ever since I've been a little kid, was my favorite. It's like you're the one that shot at that cat. You know. And he, I mean, but you know, and I I love it. But at the same time, dude, you could have paralyzed the guy. You know. It's, I mean, what's he end up with? Like how many cracked ribs and uh, internal bleeding? Like five cracked ribs and internal bleeding or whatever it was. So it's like, jeez, man. <laughs> I'm sure Sergeant Merkel didn't mind because <laughs> that's right. Yeah, he got shot too. Yeah. <laughs> and then the last part of this story, uh, we well, we get a few things. We sort of get the rise of Catwoman, the beginning of her. She's inspired by Batman to kind of create her own little costume and goes out on her little money making venture. We'll get a lot more of that next one. Um, but really, most of the last section of this issue is Gordon and Sarah having this love affair. Um, mm-hmm. And it starts simple. They start just like kind of leaving work and revealing more personal information, going to get coffee after the job before going home. And, you know, one night they're caught in the rain and they don't go home and they, they give in, they kiss. And yeah. I think this subplot with Gordon is crucial to his self-doubt and his reevaluation of Batman as a hero or a villain. Mm-hmm. Because in the last page, and it's just a full-page splash of him sitting in bed holding his gun, saying it's never felt heavier, with his pregnant wife sleeping behind him kind of restlessly, he doesn't trust the the cops, the system anymore. He's questioning if Batman is really a bad guy. I think what encapsulates that is his own self-doubt, his own feeling like he is not the good man that he used to be. He doesn't trust his own judgment. Like he could mm. he was at least when when the rest of the Gotham police force was corrupt and bad, he could consider himself a righteous man and that's no longer the case anymore because mm. he's having this extramarital affair and I think that helps him helps justify his his doubt and that not knowing who is good and who is bad anymore. I just think it's mm. it's necessary that these things are happening around the same time because otherwise I think it would be too easy for him to still rationalize Batman being a villain, being a menace to society. Mm. So yeah, I hadn't I hadn't really thought about that about his you know his affair and how that kind of changed his his own thoughts about himself. You know that I hadn't thought of that 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 but that makes sense. 
you know, the whole deal with Gordon, you know, having an affair. Of course, when I read this, I was like, you know, like I said, it wasn't uh, quite. I just turned 12, you know, so <laughs> I mean, I was shocked. You know, I was shocked. This was this was one of our heroes. This was Neil Hamilton. This was Batgirl's dad. You know, I, I, I really didn't know what to make of it at the time, you know, because Miller made him so likable otherwise. And I somewhat forgave it. But we had never had one of our DC heroes have such feet of clay. I mean, I know he's supporting character, but I mean, you never heard of Perry White having an affair or, uh, or, or Alfred or any, of course, Alfred wasn't married or anything, but you never, they, you know, they never, they were still of the, the highest moral fortitude, you know, you, they, they never did anything that was, you know, that would make you question what they were doing was right or wrong, you know, and, and, uh, it's, uh, I think it's, it's a nice little touch that uh, Gordon is drinking out of his world's uh, greatest dad mug <laughs> while he's looking at Essence's butt. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, what? Sorry. I mean, it's so, I mean, in, in Massachusetts, I mean, he is so great. I mean, we, we just keep waxing that guy's car. I mean, it's it's going to be shined up so great you can, like, you know, see yourself in it. But, I mean, he's the little the shot of where he's looking. I mean, you just get the, just a few lines to indicate that Gordon's glancing over mm-hmm. at her as she's bending over, throwing away something in the trash can. Yeah. You know, it's it's just it's a it's a great little bit. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, I think there's so, so many neat, neat little visual cues like they're in they're in Hopper's uh, diner, like uh, Hopper's Nighthawks, the painting. And it looks just like the painting. That's <laughs> that's a nice little touch, you know. I mean, he does a good job of, I mean, part of it, I think, too, is because Barbara is essentially underdeveloped. I mean, we saw her giving Gordon a back massage last issue. Mm-hmm. But other than that, she doesn't really get, I mean, she gets a little more to do in the next issue, but she's not. Essen gets more screen time than Barbara does. Right. Uh, so, I mean, in a way that kind of softens the blow of what Gordon's doing, you know, stepping out on his pregnant wife. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you know. Under most circumstances, I'd be like, you scumbag, you know, it's like, what the hell are you doing? But, you know, I mean, it's, you know, we're in this, you know, very gray area here. And like, and, and now that you, you know, put it the way you've put it with this bringing into question what he feels is right or wrong, because he doesn't even feel right anymore. Uh, it it kind of all adds up. Yep. And of course, you know, we kind of brushed over it. But yes, Selena knocks out Stan and whatever her occupation was. <laughs> <laughs> understand uh, she is no longer working for Stan so uh, she walks away from Stan so there you go <laughs> she doesn't say Holly I'm getting I, I'm leaving my dominatrix profession starting a new career and I'm taking you away from your pimp she doesn't say that she, no she beats up the pimp and says we're getting a new job or we're going into a new career it's, <laughs> we're changing our line of work is what she says Holly I got an idea. Yeah. So we're changing our line of work. So take make of that what you will. Right. <laughs> One thing that or you know, don't you actually, about, you know what? Please don't. I don't want to talk about their sex work anymore. <laughs> yeah, let's just leave it. We, we've I think we've we've beat that horse to death. I think. Whether, yeah. whether you think she was a prostitute or not, call victory and leave the field. Just yes, exactly. You, whatever you think is right because they didn't say one way or the other. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's up. It's open to interpretation. Um, I will say, you know, we don't get a whole a good view of it here, but I really do think Mazzuccelli was the only person that knew how to draw the Catwoman costume he designed hmm. because no one ever drew that thing I, under anybody everybody else's hands in the miniseries that Joe Brzezowski, aka JJ Birch, drew, and even when. Norm 
Norm Brayfogle drew it, I didn't think it looked all that great. And that was Norm Brayfogle. Yeah. I, I, I just I think Mazzuchilli is the only one that could pull off that super simple, like you know, almost no lines costume. You know, that's just a bodysuit with kind of the uh, more wrinkly gloves, and you know, she almost looks like a mouse more than a cat in a lot of ways. Yeah, actually, and I think part of it is like it's not Mazzuchilli is not a cheesecake artist. You right. know, like it, it, like the women are not just all hips and boobs and things like that, and just like you know, they're not all hourglass. There, there's a bit more of a naturalism, so that even if we said that her costume was like skin tight, it doesn't necessarily have the same. It's not a Jim Ballant drawing the Catwoman. <laughs> you know, even if Jim Ballant were drawing the same costume, you wouldn't recognize it because just right. their styles of how they depict a human body are so radically different. So. Yeah, there's a little bit more looseness, a little bit more – it just seems a little bit more lived in, kind of realistic in its depiction. Right. Um, it, it's a Catwoman costume that doesn't scream out sexuality. Right. So, but yeah, that's it, – it's, it's amazing that she went from her, you know, her bustier outfit to being fully clothed in her <laughs> Catwoman outfit. So there you go. You know, you're talking about the coloring. Probably one of the most shocking things that – it's another one of those things I've gotten so used to the trade paperback – the last full page where Gordon's sitting in bed holding his gun and Barbara's – the very pregnant Barbara is, is in bed behind him, which that's probably the first time I ever saw a pregnant belly in a comic book too. You know, <laughs> uh, the, Their bed sheets in the original are just white, and in the, you know, in the collected edition, it's got this painted pattern with, with uh, peacocks and, yeah. and birds and, and trees. And you know, so it's uh, – wow, that's, that's quite a difference. I'm like, whoa, when I, when I flipped it open, I hadn't seen it in a while. And I'm like, now that's, that's a total reimagining of, of the color work on that, on that one. So. Yeah. No, I was actually wondering what the, what the sheets looked like in the original. And, and I've – you know, the last couple months, I've, I've had a few nights where I've been situated like this, just sitting up at the edge of bed while the pregnant wife sleeps and – Except I'm not holding a gun. I'm usually holding like a stuffed Chewbacca doll or something. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> and certainly not thinking about the same things that Gordon is thinking about. Well, right. Yeah. I you know I might be thinking about Batman as often as he does, for all I know, but not not, not the other stuff. Not fidelity and and what I can do to rid the city of crime. But yeah, uh, if you if you don't want to get whacked by your wife, I'd, I'd backtrack real quick. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, any other comments about this issue? No, you know, I mean, this one, we talked about this off air beforehand, but uh, because this is the big action, kind of the big action piece of the of the uh, whole series, it's kind of all out there. You know, there's yeah. there's not as much to uh, to chew on. It, it kind of is what it is. The action's there. And and uh, we talked about it quite a bit, but it's, it's not there's not as much maybe not as much nuance in this issue until you get out of the uh out get Batman gets out of the building with the right. SWAT team and then you get back into Gordon. Uh so yeah, so maybe we maybe we didn't quite uh talk it up as much, but uh it's one of the best it's 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 one of the best action co- action comics. <laughs> Not action comics as in Superman, but one of the best comic books that's pretty much balls to the wall action for a good chunk of it that that I've ever read. I yeah. mean because it's it's and it's very, of course, just like this whole series, very cinematic. You could see somebody just straight up adapting this into a movie. I mean, they came close with uh, uh, Batman Begins. Uh, of course, that was in Arkham, and the situation was a little bit different, but you did have the SWAT come in. Right. Batman was trapped in the building, you know. So the bombing and all that stuff didn't take place. 
but you had the bats and everything. So, I mean, but you could interpret this straight up and it would work great in a movie, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's like you said, very cinematic, very, yeah, this chapter is mostly plot progression. We don't get a lot of character building moments until the end. Like, I, I don't think we get any really new exploration of Batman or Bruce Wayne's character uh, that we didn't already know other than his just resourcefulness. Uh, that he's mm-hmm. not reliant on his tools and gadgets to get him out of a jam where it looks like there's no escape. Uh, we know he's willing to save a life that he wants. To, he tries to save these homeless people, but he can't. He saves a cat, things like that. But the, we already knew that he was a good guy and, and didn't want anyone to die. That's that's built into the character. Um, we do get this new element of Gordon, uh, and it is it's escalated. It it happens pretty quickly. Like they, we even get a jump of almost two months in the story. We go to the mm-hmm. middle of June to early August. So, I, but I think like just it's explained like during that time, during that month and a half of the summer, he just he's having like this relationship with Essen with Sarah that is progressing beyond professional, uh, and we're just seeing where that goes, and it it kind of culminates at the end. So. Yeah, it's a good I, – I just think because we don't have as many character-building moments, it's not the best issue of the of the miniseries so far, but highly entertaining because you're right. It's such a cool action moment at the beginning, that whole scene. Yeah, you could translate that quite directly for beat for beat onto screen and have a really good movie moment if you did. Mm-hmm. So. All right, folks, that is going to be it for our talk on Batman 406. We're going to take another promo break right now, and when we come back, we will have your listener feedback from the last episode. Don't go away. Hello, this is Ashford from Feathers and Foes and the Straight Out of Gallifrey podcast, and I want to talk to you about my new venture with bad girl Cassandra Kane. Something in the way she moves. Born from two assassins. And the ashes of Batman, No Man's Land. Something in the way she woos me. Join us in 2017, Bad Girl Cassandra Kane Podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun. We will explore this character, and some of it will get dark, some of it will be fun, a lot of it will be triumphant, and I hope that you're there with us. Here we go, January 2017 and beyond. The Bad Girl, Cassandra Kane podcast. It's just, she has that something. Nightcast, episode 11, received Twitter favorites and retweets from Ange at Dr. Ange70, Bat at Shapirek, Between the Pages, Blue Coyote, Brian Mulvey, Cindy Womack, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Codeman, Coffee and Comics, Columbus Comics Corner, Comic Reflections, David Ace Gutierrez, David Breo, Dylan A. Lang, Film and Water Podcast, Firestorm Fan, Hicks at Reading underscore Hicks, J. David Weeder, Jim Bal, John D. Knoll, Josh Carr, Kenny Crayley Jr., Justice's First Dawn, Laurel at Mountainflower One, Matches Balone, Pod Dylan, Professor Frenzy, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ryan Bailey, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Ted Kilvington, Terence Castingway, Trabal's Bookhouse, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, and William Estep. And Kyle Benning did not like or retweet the episode, but he did comment on Twitter that he listened to the episode, and the reason that he gave Chris top billing in his iTunes review, despite appearing on like 10 of my podcasts, is because his appearance on Supermates during the Conway's crossover event was his first podcast guest spot. So... 
you beat you beat me to the punch, and that's why you got first billing. You always have a special place in your heart for the first. That's the you know. <laughs> That's right. Hey, I just want to ask, is Ryan Bailey a tragic transporter accident between you and Michael Bailey? I don't know. You know, could be. <laughs> Some parallel world. There's. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be an interesting combo there, wouldn't it? <laughs> composite me and Michael Bailey. It's, <laughs> That's awesome. It's half him, half me, and I've got green skin. <laughs> <laughs> no, he has to have green skin because he's Superman. See? Okay, all right. He's Superman, so he's got to have the green skin. So. Um, anyway, Kyle, thank you very much for uh, explaining your decisions. I do not agree with them, but I, I understand at least. Okay. Uh, over on Facebook, the last episode received likes and shares from Abadaba, Andrew Leyland, Billy Dunleavy, Brad Dade, Coffee and Comics, Charlie Niemeyer, Chip Deese, Clinton Robinson. Daniel Doherty, The Dave Cave Podcast, David Foster, DeBeche, Derek William Crabb, H. Daniel Reibold, J. David Weeder, James Hussey, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Jonathan Dye, Josh Yoder, Laurel Phillips, Leslie Trigg III, The Long Box Crusade, Max Romero, Mike Zumo, Nicholas Prom, Ali Almeida, Pat Sampson, Patrick Delmore, Robert McDonald, Roger Preeb, Scott Cage, Scott Rowland, Siskoid, Stephen Bird. Terrence Castanguay, Van Zeem, and Zoom Yukonori. All right. We also got a Facebook comment on the last episode from Dan Doherty. Despite its flaws, I enjoyed this issue a lot more than Ryan and Chris, largely because I love Sherlock Holmes just as much as I love comics. While you guys were complaining that this anniversary issue didn't include John Jones, you almost seemed to miss the point that the whole book was intended to be a celebration of both Detective Comics and Sherlock Holmes. Mike W. Barr peppered the story with little Sherlockian references that someone who's versed in the Holmes canon can appreciate. I believe Inspector Foxborough was a nod to the character of the same name from the 1978 Sherlock Holmes movie, Murder by Decree. My favorite part is the Sherlock Holmes chapter. It was a nice touch to bring back E.R. Cruz, the same artist from the 1975 one-shot, which was written by Denny O'Neill. I didn't know that. Eh, that was nice. Yeah, I think I forgot. I think I had that in my notes, but I forgot to, to mention it on air, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dan goes on, I have to admit my jaw dropped to the floor when Chris said the number of fiction's most famous address was 2218. Hubba what? That's like forgetting what newspaper Clark Kent works at. Uh, But seriously, Dan says, I loved this episode. Keep up the good work. P.S. Not that I'm trying to show off or anything, but given that Chris brought up Holmes's age in the story, I thought I'd point this out. Although never mentioned in any of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories, January 6th, 1864 is generally regarded by Holmesian scholars as being the great detective's birthday. So based on when this issue came out, December 1986, Holmes would have been 132 years old. So you weren't too far off. Mm, Well, there you go. And Cindy and I were married on January 6th, but not 1864. So we were, so yeah, so so hopefully that may help make it it up to the Holmes fans. We got married on his birthday, even though I didn't know that was the day. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we can now move on to our comments on the website, which of course, as always, you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And as always, we sometimes, as we're gathering these comments, we tend to cherry pick some. So some of your comments might be a little bit shorter. And when we have little conversational threads, Some of that I cut out uh, just to kind of get to the main points that everybody brings up. And the first comment that we got on the site came from Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast. Paul said, I remember distinctly being super excited to get this issue.
issue, then happy to let it go to the Great Collection Purge of 99. The Purge criteria was, do I want to reread this? And it was a solid no. So Paul felt the opposite of how Dan Doherty felt. Yes. Uh, Chuck Coletta wrote in and said, This was a pleasure to listen to. Thanks especially for the Slam Bradley discussion. I'm going to present an academic paper on Slam at the Pop Culture Association Conference late this year. Since he debuted in Detective Number 1, I'm going to read the original 50 or so stories that were produced by Siegel and Schuster before Superman took off. I plan on looking at how Slam's heroism may have been developed for The Man of Steel. FYI, the Brown Pop Culture Library at Bowling Green State University has all the complete issues of Detective Comics on microfilm. It's a chore to read them in this format, but very interesting. They were definitely influenced by Captain Easy and Wash Tubs. Actually, in the 1940s, Slam sidekick Shorty basically became the star of the feature. Hmm. Slam Bradley Jr. had a one-night stand with Catwoman shortly before he was killed off a few years back. He was the father of her daughter, who got retconned away with the new 52. There was even a Biff Bradley, a brother, who popped up somewhere when Slam could not be used for some reason. Hmm. I remembered there was something between him and Catwoman, and I thought he was the father of the child, but I couldn't remember if he was, this Slam was supposed to be the original, or he was supposed mm-hmm. to be the son, or at this point he probably ought to be the grandson, even if he's older, you know, sure, but, yeah. but still, yeah. Well, I want to sit in on these, uh, these things that Chuck does. <laughs> I want to go. I want to. <laughs> yeah, it sounds good. It's, it's good that Bowling Green can recover so quickly after that terrible massacre they suffered, you know, in recent history. <laughs> Um, but seriously, no, yeah, that sounds like a really cool and fascinating thing. Um, Martin Gray actually added that maybe Chuck's research could answer the unresolved question that we had. Uh, something Bradley had that mention about the richest man in the world telling him to go to hell or something. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that he mentioned in, uh, in Chuck's comment, uh, in the 1940s, Slam's sidekick Shorty basically became the star of the feature. Actually, that fate kind of happened to a lot of Golden Age superhero characters. You know, like Green Lantern was basically sidelined by his own, you know, Doiby Dickles type of, you know, psychic yeah. character. Just as the, you know, fantastical superhero fad was going away, they were kind of being replaced by their their psychics, which were played more for humor, just because the trends of the of the comics were changing after the War Years. So. Well, and 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 the then Alan Scott was completely replaced by his dog Streak, yeah. and then the Spectre was almost pushed out of his strip by what was it Percival Pop the Super Cop or mm-hmm. whatever his name was. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it was common, yeah. yeah. Uh, our very own network's Rob Kelly said. Oh man, I cannot wait for sex talk with Ryan and Chris coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. You're going to have to wait a little bit longer for that one. I'm sorry, Rob. Uh, he says, This issue was always my least favorite of the Bar Davis run. Kaluta is a master illustrator, but as Chris said, this is one dull cover. And while it's understandable that DC couldn't reuse the cover to Detective Comics number one, using issue 27 just really doesn't make any sense. My favorite part is that Holmes is still alive in the DCU. I wish we had seen a one-off team-up between Bats and Holmes down the line, drawn by Davis, of course. Maybe they could have fought the Immortal Man. Uh, Rob says, lots of very interesting discussion from the feedback. I totally see Ward Hill Terry's problems with year one, but nevertheless, all the stuff he points out just doesn't bother me. Unless I'm wrong, I never got the sense that Bruce was always from Gotham 20 years straight. Maybe I'm backfilling, but I figured that he would make regular trips back home to do recon like you would expect. But the official story was that he was in Europe or whatever. I don't know about that. I, I... Again, like the, that was an issue that didn't really bother me. But yeah, I kind of figured like he would still know the terrain. He would he would have studied that pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob also says 
The lack of continuity with the regular Bat books never bothered me either. In other Batman comics, there are Detective Chimp, Plastic Man, Dr. Fate, the Guardians of the Universe, etc. Can you picture any of those concepts fitting into the world established in Year One? Of course not, so it's best not to try to merge them. I've always thought of Year One as a sort of Elseworld story, a this-is-kinda-how-it-got-started, and not meant to be stitched Frankenstein-like to the messier, crazier DC Universe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can, you, you kind of, I mean, they made year one canon, but you, you, and even though Superman's brought up a couple times, you do kind of have to kind of keep it at arm's length in a way, yeah. I mean, it's just, that's part of the reason we're doing this podcast is to show how this this era, not everything could fit. I mean, the next issue that we're going to cover next time, tonally, could not fit in the same world. And right. Yeah, Batman year one, it is... It is different. It could be its own little pocket universe. It is so self-contained that way, so grounded. It's not a fantastical story. It's not a superhero story. It is a crime story, like Heat or Hill Street Blues, that happens to feature a vigilante in a, in a costume, but it's not a superhero story. Trying to meld it perfectly, I mean, nothing about it necessarily contradicts what you see in, in the other comics, but... You, you know, you could be left scratching your head wondering how these are the same world. But but they don't have to make perfect sense because they're fictional stories. Mark Baker Wright said, I was a little surprised no one commented on the name of Nigel Brewster as homaging longtime Watson actor Nigel Bruce, who most famously played opposite Basil Rathbone's Holmes. Well, I didn't catch that even though I knew Nigel Bruce was Watson and I'd seen a few of the movies. I I didn't catch it. So that's a, that's a good one there. I, did, did you catch that one? Honestly, no, but I think our line from now on should be, if somebody says you didn't mention this, we knew what that was, we just chose not to mention it because <laughs> otherwise the people listening would have nothing to comment on. Uh, right, uh, there you go. We, we got to leave a little bit for you guys to pick up. So. We make mistakes on purpose so you guys can <laughs> fill in the blanks. There no. you go. There you go. <laughs> Um, and actually, Martin Gray did bring up that exact same thing with Nigel Bruce and Nigel Brewster uh, in a later comment that was published earlier than Mark's. So, but yeah, so yeah, other people picked up on that, and it's a good catch, yeah. So, uh, Robert Markham said, My guess on this cover is that Sherlock is a recent arrival in Batman's era, and Batman's educating Sherlock on interim history. Catch-up learning, as Jillian Taylor called it. <laughs> So, if that is the case, I love the idea that Batman would would bring Sherlock up to speed by showing him old copies of Detective Comics. Like, right. Like now, here's the part in our modern history where I fought a monk who was really a vampire, or maybe a werewolf, or maybe both. The point is, I killed him. So, let's turn to the next one. This is the part where I adopted a kid. <laughs> I knocked this guy into a vat of acid. Yes. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. Our buddy David Ace Gutierrez, the executive producer of Pod Dylan, wrote in to say, I think I forgave this one a bit more than Franklin and Ryan. So why, why is my name – I get a last name, but you get a first name. What, what's up with that? Anyway, not a terrific outing. Sure, but this has one of my favorite moments in Jason Todd's history, the did you see Mr. Bradley moment. Todd wasn't allowed enough time as a wide-eyed boy wonder, so this is a nice slice of his brief career. But I do agree with you guys. A John Jones appearance would have been nice. Yeah, you know, I, I brought that up. I do like that, you know, Jason Jason had that kind of almost instant grandfatherly thing going on with Slam, and uh, I really wish Barr or somebody had done something with it. Again, we might not have we might not have ended up with a 900 number and Rob Kelly calling to kill him if, yeah. 
if they went with more slam. <laughs> and actually, one of the things that I've been finding in this rerun of the Barr and Davis run between the art and between Barr's uh, scripting, the thing that is really jumping out and that I'm loving is this depiction of Robin. And mm-hmm. this is what I'm really missing. I wish this had gone longer, in particular, how they deal with Robin. Like, if, if this had been more of the status quo going forward... I don't think he would have been killed off. I, I or it, it would have been a while. But this is, yeah, I, I like the energy they give the character, and wish we had more of this. This Robin, this this, uh, even though the animated version of Tim Drake owes a lot to the second version of Jason Todd we're just mm. about to get. The way that he's portrayed is very similar. You know, very energetic. He's like he's the little kid Robin. You know, yes. that's wide-eyed and and uh, you know he, he's does little he, he acts like a little kid and on these adventures and and it worked there and it works here so you know it's it is it is too bad that they just didn't realize what they had and abandoned it so quickly right uh diablo frank came in and said you guys brought up john jones so i'm contractually obligated to address that discussion I'm not sorry he wasn't in this issue because it sounds like a dog, and I'm glad I don't have to have read it. Well, it wasn't that bad, although Frank Frank would probably find more faults in it than we do, (laughs) just by his nature. Uh, He says, when Detective Comics 500 came out in 1981, Jean was still off trying to make Mars 2 happen. The strange death of Dr. Erdell was a sly way to acknowledge both Manhunters and the much more recent vintage Hawks time in a series where their science fantasy was never the best fit. By 1987, even the vastly more grounded street-level elongated man was a bit of a strange inclusion. If you look at Mike W. Barr's career, he never really gravitated toward the more fantastic areas of comics. His Batman work suggests a much greater affinity for New Look and Bronze Age Batman than the BEMs and Mad Science of the Jack Schiff wilderness years. It is highly possible that Barr had little exposure to nor interest in the Alien Atlas, which is perhaps a shame. While I find his supposedly straight superhero work to be so rank that I suspect he couldn't take it seriously, his time on sci-fi and mystery titles leads me to believe that getting assigned a Manhunter from Mars strip might have married two of his favorite genres. I I mean, I can't say more to that other than I would have liked to see Mike W. Barr try a Martian Manhunter story. I think that would have been cool, but in part because I like the character and I want more Martian Manhunter stories. But yeah, I think Barr would have had an interesting take on him if he tried it. Agreed. Yeah, I, you know, and, and I haven't got it. One of the few DC companion books that Tomorrow's put out uh, was the sci-fi, like the Silver Age sci-fi mm-hmm. companion. And Mike W. Barr was the writer editor on that, yep. um, so he definitely has a has an affinity for it. So yeah, you know, Jean needed all the exposure he could get from 1960, <laughs> you know, eight or nine or whatever it was, up until 1984 when he came back to JLA. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I can't tell you how much I hate it when they put the IRA in U.S. comics. Did Denny O'Neill edit this issue? Because he romanticized these terrorists something awful and Daredevil not long afterwards with Gloriana O'Brien or something and the Gale. Just butt out already. Here's a mystery. Why did a couple of minutes of the podcast repeat? Uh, Ryan, you want to take that one? <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I thought the episode. No sounded, idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I thought the episode sounded perfect, and I would ask you not to besmirch my reputation as a perfect art editor. <laughs> hey, as much work as Ryan puts on that, if if like a couple of seconds repeat, you know, he does all the work, so. I'm not complaining myself, i tell you that right now. Uh, Martin continues, Chris is spot on. If you look at Mystery, you will see that Terry Beatty's 
Regular style was very straightforward, pedestrian even, but likable and fine for Slam Bradley. Oh, that Dick Sprang poster. I do hope he's drawing murals in the afterlife. Yeah, I hope so, too, because I want to see it. (laughs) (laughs) One million points for playing Private Eyes. That never fails to get me singing and grinning. Well, that was your choice of song. That was a good one. Yeah, I had a a few others on my short list, and you mentioned that one. I was like, oh, yeah, that was easily the best of these songs. Well, it's funny because I suggested Building a Mystery by Sarah McLaughlin. You're like, uh, that's too new. That's that's yeah. after the, around the era that we're covering. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, we're, we're doing that. And it just so happened it worked perfectly for <laughs> Justice Number 2 uh, for Supermates Episode 70, part of the JLMA crossover, which is still going on uh, as you listen to this. Uh, so, uh, so I dropped it in there, so it worked <laughs> out fine. <laughs> Um, seriously though, uh, if anybody wants to do this little bit of homework, uh, because I don't feel inclined to do it, but I, if you meet me halfway, uh, if anybody can find the exact times where the, the episode starts to repeat from last episode, I can actually make that correction. I can re-edit it, re-upload it, and it will be corrected for future ones. Or we can just leave the imperfection, uh, for, for all time, assuming that it, there is a mistake. I'm not convinced there actually is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Ward Hill Terry came back. Ooh, what's this one going to be? Holy Double Jeopardy, you read two of my letters. I may be making a dent in the the fire and water frequent commenter sphere. I stand by my critique, and I have been thinking about it very frequently. As I said, year one is not what I think is a great Batman story, but it is a great story and stirs up the critical thinking faculties. As to this issue, the only thing that struck my memory was the Dick Sprang illustration. I cannot think of any Mike W. Barr stories that I can recall fondly. I didn't care much for The Outsiders. I know he was the go-to guy to write mysteries, but nothing really resonated with me. Barr's contributions to Batman are about the same as David V. Reed's, in my opinion. Ooh! (laughs) <laughs> the mystery, the mysteries seem forced with coincidence and happenstance having as much, if not more, weight than deduction. And then, about three hours later, Ward came back to correct himself. No, wait, I take it back. I fondly remember Mike W. Barr's Green Arrow stories, the four-issue mini, and especially the stories in World's Finest and Detective. Barr had a great ear for Ollie's speech, and he did a great job of filling in his neighborhood with friends, allies, and acquaintances. This was when Ollie was living in a crummy part of Star City and not mooching off of Dinah. <laughs> yeah, I, I like Barr's Green Arrow stuff, yeah. Yeah, I like that miniseries. Yeah, that was great. With Trevor Von Eden, uh, when he was at the top of his game there, yeah. But David V. Reed Ward, gosh, whoa, I don't know, but I don't know about that. Of course, we, I like Barb, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, David V. Reed had some. There was some wacky stuff in the David V. Reed. I mean, some of it's kind of funny. He's kind of, he's almost Bob Haney like in a lot of ways, but he doesn't have. He, it's it's without the Bob Haney charm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah. there's in the super tight plot. Even if it's nut, that it's like it's really tight. Even if it, he has to make the characters like act incredibly out of character and out of continuity to make it work. Yeah, but there's there's some similarities there, yeah. Right, right. And our last comment came from Ted Kilvington, who said, I don't think it was mentioned in this discussion, but the pre-crisis Batman did meet Sherlock Holmes and Deadman and Sergeant Rock in DC Special Series number 8, which he did not mention this, Ted didn't, but I would almost guarantee that that was written by Bob Haney. It was. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I went back and double checked. Yeah, it was. That was a Bob Haney issue. Yeah, it was a Brave and the Bold special in yep. like in DC. Yeah, which was really weird that they did those DC special series as another title instead of just making an annual for that year or something. It was that was really odd that they did that. Yeah, anytime you got Sergeant Rock teaming up with Batman, it's got to be Bob Haney. <laughs> it's got to be. Yeah. Yep. Speaking of existing in its own little world. Yeah. Um, that was the last comment, but we also got an email from Rob Myers, the host of the Robin podcast, Everyone Loves the Drake. Rob says, Your show has been on my to-listen queue for a bit, so I'm finally making my way through. I don't think it should take too long to catch up. This podcast is right in my sweet spot for Robins and Batman. Yes, I said Robin first. For me, it has always been a Robin universe. Batman just had more screen time. With Robin being my favorite character, Tim, obviously, it was how I decided to buy comics. Now, of course, I love Batman, but Robin was the selling, or in this case, the buying point for me. I would go to the grocery store with Mom, and if I was a good boy, she would let me buy a comic or two. If Robin was on the front cover, it was a must-buy. Other times, I would have to flip through the book. If I saw a yellow cape, it went in the cart. If not, then I didn't get it. That must be how Rob got so many Dr. Fate and Our Man comics by mistake. <laughs> uh, he said, I know that was a dumb way to buy comics, but I digress. Sadly, Batman 401 and 402 I did not buy until a week ago. I had random issues during this early 400s era of Batman and also the 560s in Detective. I have, in recent years, gone back and picked up a lot of the comics from 400 forward. After recently finishing Michael Bailey's Legends epic-sized podcast, and now your first three episodes... I had to finally own these books. I can see why maybe I passed on a few of them back in 1986, but glad to finally have them in my collection now. Comics for me as a kid were few and far between. As I got older, I heard of these stories, but never sought them out for whatever reason. I wouldn't really get into comics officially until Batman Year 3. Then I was along for the ride, discovering Tim Drake was all I needed. My Robin had arrived. Having covered Year 3 forward for Tim on my show, I'll be eager to hear what your thoughts on Year 3 and the big one for me, A Lonely Place of Dying, are. I know we are still a minute or two or three from you covering this era. Until then, I can dig in and reread these books along with you as you cover them. The great thing about reading some of these older comics for the first time is, it has me saying, Boy, 12-year-old me, you missed out on a lot of great stories. At times I felt bad for not knowing about these issues or even having the chance to read them back in the day, but now I have a great commentary track to go along with it, and this show is making me step up our game a bit over at the Drake Podcast. Thanks, guys. Well, thank you very much, Rob Meyer, for sending in that email. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a while before we get to year three and a lonely place of dying, but uh, I, I will be excited to see that uh, transitional period as we get to a new Robin. That'll be cool. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, you know, Tim's – I always have Dick as my favorite Robin, but Tim's a solid number two for me. So, uh, you know, and I mean I like this version of Jason as well, but yeah, I, I really like Tim, and I really, really detest Damien, and I hate that he supplanted <laughs> Tim. So, uh, but yeah. But uh, yeah, so it's uh, yeah, it'll be a while, but we plan on getting there. So just uh, just stay with us. <laughs> it'll be fun in the meantime. There, there's still plenty of good. Well, there, there's a little bit of meh, but there's there's a lot of good. But before there's a, there's a lot of discussion to be had, even for the meh. Yeah, you know? There is. There's yeah. interesting talking points. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and getting back to our discussion on one of those you know, very first episodes, Rob did chime in with what he thinks are his three favorite Batman, which are really his three favorite Robin artists. 
uh, and he said Norm Brayfogle, Jim Aparo, and Graham Nolan, who you mentioned earlier, is making his comeback with that Bane yeah. Conquest story. Yeah. We're all coming back around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, he also wanted to give a shout-out to a more modern artist, Pat Gleason, uh, who Rob says is very underrated. I there isn't a problem with Gleason's art like I can't objectively say that looks stylistically or technically wrong it's just a personal preference I've never really liked Pat Gleason's art I didn't like it on Aquaman I didn't like it on Green Lantern Corps uh I I know with I think with a new 52 he started on Batman and Robin I just yeah I, I'm not I'm not crazy about the artist again no problem. Like it's it's just a personal preference thing. I don't think his art is bad, and I don't criticize anybody who does like it. It's just yeah, not 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 my thing. Uh, he's working on Superman books right now, right? Isn't he? Yeah, I think he is with uh, Pete Tomasi. I think they yeah they usually, they've worked together a lot, and I think they're probably working together. Right. Yeah, and 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 I've been, I've enjoyed it pretty well there. It's it's just. They where those books double ship now. It's it's a lot like what Rob covers on Aquaman. You know, it's hard to keep up with who's drawing what. Uh, you know, so yeah. I think, oh, is this Pat Gleason? I really like this. And I look, oh wait, this isn't Pat Gleason. It's just somebody that's similar to him, uh, similar style, but now they're doing something different. But I have liked for the most part what he's been doing over Superman. But I've just been enjoying the hell out of Superman in action. So, uh, so that's that's part of it. But I, I don't have a a fundamental issue with it. I, I think. I think he's a pretty solid guy, but I I think he's I think he's a pretty uh, well regarded artist. I mean, he's pretty popular, mm-hmm. really. So, so I, I mean, but I mean, if you really love him, though, he's probably still underrated. So <laughs> you know, it's all in the eye of the beholder there. So yeah, yeah, true, true. Uh, and that is it for our feedback section. Uh, miraculously, we we did not have a new um, sex ed talk lesson. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe in a couple months, for a while, we can come back with something new that we didn't know. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll see how that goes. So what uh, we're going to get is a lot of a lot of people comment. It's like I have forty five cats <laughs> and my house smells fine. <laughs> you jerk. <laughs> Yes, let's let's do indeed find, walk down that rabbit hole and find out where we're going. Oh uh, yeah, that'll that'll be a fun revelation. We can't wait for that. So, uh, okay, before we go any further, Chris, can you tell us what is coming up on the next episode of Batman Nightcast? Well, we have a we're back to form with the Bar Davis run in Detective Comics uh, issue five seventy three where. We have the return of one of Batman's classic rogues that doesn't get a lot of play, and it's a version, it's probably the last time we see this particular version of the Mad Hatter. Yeah, I was even thinking, like, I remember when I first saw this one, I was like, wow, this feels really late in the history to be getting this version of Mad Hatter. But uh, Mm. yeah, probably the last time, so it's a good one, going to be fun. So until then, talk to you next time. Bye. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me, Chris, on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast.gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. All this time, I still remember everything.
Listen, much you promised. How could I ever fall? 